0: Mac Power Users, episode 384, Screencasting 101, with J.F. Brissett. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal, David Sparks. How are you, David?
1: Doing fantastic, Katie Floyd.
0: Well, I am glad to be back here podcasting with you, and we have a longtime friend, uh, someone who has been a part of the MacPower Users family for a while, but who is our first time on the show, and I'm going to try this. I know him as JF, but it's Jean-Francois Brissette. Did I get close?
2: Wow, that was awesome. All right. Well done.
0: He is one of the nicest guys in the world. I've had an opportunity to meet him in person a few times when I've gone out to the West Coast, but I know, David, you guys pal around quite a bit. Which I am I'm jealous of
1: JF and I are uh, we are good friends and now we're bandmates oh boy so, yeah
0: well that's that's good
1: if you, if you listen to the last show with Teddy's Ferronos, there has been developments let's just put it that way I,
0: I leave for one week and yeah. and everything <laughs> changes I see I see how it goes I can't leave you alone for a minute
1: but the, you know, the real reason we're doing this show is is for, for years, I've been making these screencasts and um, occasionally collaborating with my friend, Jean-Francois. And we, um, we both, I think, have some expertise in screencasting. And lots of listeners have asked, I don't understand how you do it. You know, could you explain what it is and how you pull it off? And so we thought it'd be fun to do a show. We'll do, we're, we're calling it Screencasting 101, where we just talk about what screencasting is, why it's important. And what our tools are and some of our favorite tips and tricks for making good quality screencasts. Because this is something that I think everybody may have a a need or want for. You don't necessarily have to make fancy product videos, but just, you know, there's a lot of uses for this stuff. So
0: my tip, folks, don't even get started. Don't even start the screencasting thing because it will send you down a rabbit hole and you will never get your life back.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it, it can be kind of time consuming, but uh, but we, we're but we're gonna get to that. Before we do, let's let's uh, give JF a little bit of time to just tell um, the listeners about him in addition to being a nice guy and a good friend, he's also a nerd of the highest order. um has been <laughs> yeah. screencasting forever. I mean, you and I were doing this back in the, way long before the, the better tools we have now are out. Absolutely. Uh,
2: that's very true. As a matter of fact, uh, a little bit before we started uh, recording together today, I was looking at my timeline. I wasn't quite sure exactly of the year I started. And I, it turns out that the, uh, the first, professional screencast i did for mac pro video which is still around and i'm sure a lot of you listeners know about them was back in january of 2008 and um, that's a month before screenflow the original version of screenflow came out and so i at the time and david katie probably you'll both remember this tool it's called snaps pro yes Uh, that is what i used back then Um, it was a good tool because there was really nothing else at least to my knowledge at the time The really interesting thing back then is that you had to render every single video you recorded. So we don't think about that anymore. We just record and it records in real time. But back then, as soon as you stopped, it had to render before you could do anything with that clip. So it was a really, really different time back then.
1: Yeah, and their big selling point was that it's full resolution. Some of the competitors uh, would do rendering later, but it would be compressed, so it wasn't as good a video. And, and I was, cause I was doing screencasts even before Mac power users came into existence. So back around the same 2007, 2008 was when I first started using it. And, and those videos were just that they were just raw video of the screen. And if you wanted to add things, you had to go into, you know, final cut or some sort of post, you know, nonlinear editor to go and really make it, turn it into something of use. And the good news for everybody listening is that's not the case anymore. It's a lot easier. But, um, and we're going to, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but, but just to, to back up a little bit. So JF was doing editing and video work at Macprovideo.com for years.
2: Still am actually for,
1: oh, you still are. And you're also the supervising editor for screencast online run by our pal, Don McAllister. So JF's doing a lot of screencast editing. Um, so he's got a lot of experience. In fact, some of the stuff I've done, JF has been the editor on some of the screencasts I've put together. So, um, it's just really great having someone that spends so much of his time doing this stuff, uh, on the show to share some wisdom about this stuff and, and where it works. Another cool thing about JF, um, totally on the side is he's a really great bass player and a classically trained bass player. He would, he played with, how long were you with Cirque de Soleil?
2: Oh my God. That adventure lasted for just shy of 15 years right here
1: in Las Vegas. Yeah. So he's in in Vegas now and he was the, the bass player for Cirque de Soleil for me. Which show were you with? So uh, bass player uh, first for Miss
2: Stare when it was born back on Christmas day of 1993. Then I, I became band leader for that show Then I moved over to uh, the O Show, which is at the Bellagio here in Las Vegas, still going to this day. And I was with them for about five years or so.
0: Now, you were their musical director,
2: weren't you? Mm -hmm, That's right. Yeah. We used the terms interchangeably, I guess, band leader, music director. I was responsible to make sure that the arrangement sounded good and conducting the band during the show uh, with my voice. No baton there, just with my voice, because we play over headsets and so on. It was a great time. It really was. Uh, I learned a lot and I, I was a geek back then still. And I, I was a Mac user back then as well. And um, lots of cool tools. That's when I started using Logic, actually, in, in, uh, when I was with that show.
0: Now, you actually also accompanied, I, I know this was a small kind of one-time gig, but I remember it very fondly uh, when David Pogue was the keynote speaker at Macworld the year after Apple pulled out, um, he did a little musical show and you were, um, his, 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 accompaniment. Uh, and that was the very fondly remembered for me because that was the Macworld where Lavar Burton was the guest.
2: Oh my God, that was such a great time. And David had done, and I had done the show the previous year with that. The year you're mentioning today was absolutely amazing. And having Lavar there, I do a little play. And um, there was also a famous uh, YouTube band there.
0: Uh, the people who do the, um,
2: oh yeah. The
1: the news. Auto-tune the news.
2: Auto-tune the news. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Thanks. Yeah. And so that was a great time and and David and I had a great relationship back then. We still do by the way. I, I called him just recently to ask him about the Yahoo uh acquisition to make sure he was okay and everything was fine but um and that is that is everything's fine there but the um the collaboration we had was really awesome. I I was someone who was doing uh, arrangements for him and like you said playing the bass uh, on stage with him. So it was really a good time.
1: Well, so Jeff you're a smart guy and uh multi-talented but like we were saying you pay for your shoes quite often by uh, making screencasts so so we're going to talk about that today but before we get into the details of of how you make a screencast i thought it'd be useful to talk about you know what you know what is a screencast and why is it so useful so um a screencast is a video of what's happening on a computer screen or an iphone screen or an ipad screen it's it's like if somebody were to put a camera over your shoulder and just focus it just on the pixels on the screen, and uh, so it's it's not necessarily a movie of the person, although you can have an element of live video in them. Uh, but it's a great way to explain how to use software or or do other other sorts of things with training, and um, and this is the stuff that that we're going to be talking about today.
0: Now, I would say that screencast really became more popular. Maybe in the mid two thousands, uh, perhaps some in the early two thousands, but there were lots of barriers to screencasts from from a technology standpoint. Just because you know, pure bandwidth is how are, how are we going to get these to people, and and file size, because how do you make a, a screen look good where menus are readable and things like that.
1: And and they've solved a lot of those problems now. I mean, I, I use them. You know, one of the ways I I make a living is I make product videos for companies when they have a new video you know, coming out or an update to software and they want to teach people how to use it. I also make the Max Barkey video field guides, which are a screencast. It's just a screencast teaching people how to use software, but you don't have to go that crazy. And and we'll talk about how detailed those things are later in the outline, but, but this stuff is also, anybody can use this stuff. Like, like lately I've been bringing some people on, I've been hiring to help me out with things and You know, I've got one client that has a very particular billing system. You have to log on to a website and type in certain things and click on certain buttons to submit a bill to them. And uh, so I have an assistant to do that for me now. And the first time we did it, I just ran ScreenFlow, a screencasting program. Um, There were no edits to make. It just literally recorded my steps and my voice as I was explaining to her what I need to do. And when I was done, I just rendered that out to a video and I gave her the video file and now she, cause she only has to do this once a month so that, you know, the, the amount of time between the time she does, this is not an, you know, it's not frequent enough that she's going to remember. So now she has the video. So next month when she goes to do it, she can watch the video again and get to work. So I'm saving myself time, kind of building some training in for employees with the screencast. Um, Another thing you can do with screencasts is tech support. You know, if you've got a a relative or a friend who just can't figure out how to change the font in pages or how to turn on their VPN or whatever it is, uh, with the tools we're going to talk about today, you can make a quick and dirty screencast and just send it to them. And if they watch you do it and hear your voice, they won't need to ask you anymore. You know, they can watch that video. You save it.
2: It's a great tool uh, for people, especially now that you can you can simply record a section of the screen and very quickly share it. Even sometimes over email with all the tools we have today, such as mail drop and so on, it's, it's very easy. You can do that very quickly. I really I really like that part of screencasting, just helping people out with uh, very quick tips and tricks or something that's happening on their screen and you want to show them how they can do it a little bit differently. I, I really enjoy doing that too.
1: I even use it for my future self. Um There's like on the day job, there's this, I, I represent several companies that are based out of Delaware because that's a thing if you have a company. And there's a couple very obscure filings that I have to do in Delaware like once a year for a couple clients. And every time I go to do it, I feel like I have to learn it all over again. And I just, just recently I had to do one of those. So I said, okay, I sat down, I figured it out. Then I screencasted it for myself. And... uh next time I run into this, I'll just watch the video again. So I I can just go in and get the work done without having to like relearn the system.
2: That's a great idea.
1: Yeah. The uh, it's also good for presentations. Um, Katie and I speak usually every year in Chicago at the American bar association tech show,
0: which has the worst wifi.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's where they hold it at the Hilton in Chicago, which the conference center is in the basement. So uh, it It is you're, you're in a Faraday cage for all intents and purposes for the Internet. And that's got a lot better over the last few years. They've added Internet stuff. But, you know, whenever you're standing in front of a room full of people and you want to show how something works on the Internet, you don't want there to be a variable in there that says, you know, there's an X percent chance that the Internet just won't won't show up. And then, you you know, your whole presentation doesn't work. So Katie and I got in the habit a long time ago where we, you know, at our homes where we have good internet, we screencast whatever it is demo we're going to use on the internet. So we make a little short video. Those are great uh, and super easy because you don't have to do any voiceover on them. You know, you're going to be doing the voiceover in live and in person, but we just make a quick video of how we're doing it. And then we um and we embed that video in the presentation and then you can play the the video and then you'll know it's going to work when you stand up and speak.
0: Yeah, they're good for Any kind of demos, even when you're not relying on the internet, because you never know what's going to go wrong on a demo. You never know when an app is going to choose to update or when a notification is going to pop on the screen, or even when something's just going to go haywire and your demo is going to get off and then your timing's off. So if you screencast it, if something goes wrong, you just edit the screencast. And then once you've got it screencast, if you ever give that presentation again, or a variation of that presentation, you've already got your demo done.
1: Um, I've talked in the past about how when I give uh, like trial presentations concerning property, uh, I like to go into Google earth on, on the Google earth app on my Mac. And I just cut the screen, just the section that shows the Google earth and I zoom out. So you see the whole earth spinning there. It's very impressive. And then you have it just dial into the address of whatever you're talking about. And you have a nice little video that looks like you hired a satellite to zoom into the earth to that location <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it's kind of sexy. It, it it makes it interesting for people to see, you know, exactly where this place is, but it's a little bit of a production value too. And that's just quick and dirty screencasting. I mean, all this stuff is available to you. If you spend, you know, listen to the show, pick up these tools, you're gonna have a way to use this stuff in your life.
2: Absolutely. One example that, that I'm reminded of as, as you talk about this guys is um, a few years ago with the local youth orchestra here in Las Vegas. Uh, they were playing a piece and in order for them to be able to watch and listen to the music on their mobile devices, what I did using ScreenFlow is I found the score, which is public domain. In other words, I could use it. I could take screenshots and use it and uh, scanned every single page or rather took screenshots of every single page, lined them up in ScreenFlow, put the uh, symphony itself, the movement, a movement at a time down on ScreenFlow as an audio clip, and then simply uh cut as uh page turns, so to speak, digital page turns. I was able to do that very easily and share the video so uh so the kids in the orchestra could uh could watch it at any time and, and uh have an idea of the music and what everybody else is doing. So it's a great great way to uh, to use uh screencasting for sure.
1: Yeah, I've been recently contacted by a theater company that um they have a lot of older subscribers in their system. And they updated the computer system so you can change your seat assignments and various things. And a lot of the folks that that are subscribers are completely lost about how they do all this stuff online. So they're going to hire me, and my screencast for them is going to be on their website, just showing people how to change their seat, how to cancel a ticket, how to, you know, and just a series of videos. And all of this stuff is just the way I think the future is going. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, you learned everything with words. And now people are much more visual and, you know, it's just the technology. I guess 10 or 15 years ago, we would have used video if it was possible, but now it is possible. So people are doing that. You know, I got a new razor and I wanted to learn how to clean it. I went on YouTube. I didn't look for a manual. I just watched a video on it. So uh, this this kind of stuff is a good skill to kind of develop or at least just knows out there. Katie's done some pretty good screencasting, too. I mean, you did that great video with the um,
0: Open DNS.
1: Open DNS system a few years ago.
0: Yeah, it's been a while.
1: That's right. I saw that one, Katie. That was a great one. Great one.
0: Yeah, probably do for updating. You know, one of the things that reminds me is how much this has all evolved over the last couple of years. You know, Don McAllister, our friend who's been on the show a couple of times, um, is, is one who really introduced me to screencasting because he has the the great screencast online, which I know, Jeff, you, does, you do some work for and, you know, Don has completely changed his workflows over the course of how he produces screencasts online. I think he talked about that. I'll have to put a link in the show notes on, on one of our previous episodes.
2: Yeah, you're right. Uh, Don, to, to speak about screencasts online for a minute, in terms of screencasting, the technology has changed and things have gotten a lot better. Uh, we're, we're you know, we're going back all the way back to 2005 is when he started. And I remember having great conversations with him where he uh, he would get out of his screencasting app and go into Final Cut Pro and even use motion for certain graphics. And his workflow was a lot more complex and multi-step than it is now. And now almost everything stays in the screencasting app.
1: Can you tell that one of the things we're going to do today is tell you to buy ScreenFlow? <laughs> <laughs> I <was> st- <laughs> keep staying so away problems. from naming
2: it, but yeah, absolutely. This It's, it's the, uh, the game in town for sure.
1: So before we dig in on the, the finer points, um, we've told you how great screencasting is. Um, I think one of the things that can be off-putting about it is the idea of how hard it is and how much time it takes. And like when I do a video for a company or even some of my video screencasting stuff, it is massively time-consuming. It's like um, uh, when I do short videos for people because of all the steps that are involved with pre-production and post-production, you know, just to get two or three minutes on the screen often takes you know, two to four hours. I mean, uh, one day, I, when, once I told somebody, it's about an hour per minute, um, when, especially when you're doing shorter projects. For longer projects, it scales down a little better than that. But uh, it can be massively time-consuming, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, you know, the, the stuff we were talking about earlier, about just making videos for somebody that works for you or for future self or making a simple, quick uh, capture that you can embed in a presentation... That stuff can happen actually really quickly, and, uh, and and you shouldn't be intimidated is what I'm saying. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Fracture. Get those beautiful photographs off your iPhone and on your walls with a Fracture print. Go to FractureMe.com podcast, and make sure to mention Mac Power Users when you check out. Every year, Apple makes the iPhone camera better. And as a result, we've got these things in our pocket with literally thousands of beautiful pictures. How many of those have you actually printed out or put on your walls? I'm guessing the answer is not as many as you'd like, and I know why. It's difficult and time-consuming. You have to get the picture printed. You have to figure out what the frame is. Then you got to figure out if the frame matches the room. There's all these steps you have to go through. Well, that's the beautiful thing about Fracture. Fracture is the photo decor company that can rescue your favorite images from the digital ether. Just go to FractureMe.com slash podcast and then upload your favorite photos. Then they sent it to you printed on glass and with a laser cut rigid backing. The images are ready to display right out of the box. They even include a wall anchor. So there's no effort involved. Pick the image, upload it, and then you've got a beautiful picture to hang on your wall. Not only is it easy, it also looks better. Rather than sticking a printed image behind a piece of glass, Fracture puts the image right on the glass. It's kind of like that feeling you get when you look at an iPhone screen, how they have the LCD screen bonded to the glass. It's like that. As a result, your photo will really pop, and with a sleek frameless design, your photo can stand out and match any decorating style. My wife also loves Fracture because every time we have a good picture, she sends it out and gets it printed at Fracture, and then we've got this collection, and throughout the year, we can rotate them and really enjoy the images that we've taken. I'd add to that that Fracture prints also make excellent gifts. They come with a 60-day happiness guarantee, so you're sure to love your order. Each Fracture is handmade in Gainesville, Florida from U.S. source materials in their carbon-neutral factory. So get those great photos off your phone and onto your walls. Go to FractureMe.com podcast. And don't forget to mention Mac Power users in their one-question survey. It helps support the show.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about screencasting on the Mac. And I remember there have been tons of screencasting apps. Some of them have gone. Some of them have gone. Um, a, a few of them are still around. We've obviously talked about ScreenFlow. But let's talk about some of the options that are, that are still available.
1: Yeah, we already mentioned Snaps Pro, which was the one JF started. Actually, the one I used the most at the beginning was iShowU, because it didn't have to do the renders.
2: I had the same discovery soon after I used Snaps Pro for my second uh, screencast for Mac Pro video, I switched over to iShowU, and that was a really, really awesome upgrade from Snaps Pro, for sure.
1: And so iShowU was great, and this is all historical, so we'll go through it pretty quickly. But then, uh, And that did the job of capturing you know the pixels moving around the screen, but then you had to get into... Really, you needed Final Cut. That was the solution I used. I think that was what most people were using at the time. And maybe a combination of motion and some of the other Final Cut tools to to put an actual video together. Um, you know, that stuff is largely irrelevant now, but there's some things that aren't. One is, um, is QuickTime. Uh, you, you can record your screen in QuickTime now. You don't have to buy any tools to do that. Um, do you do that very often, Jeff? Do you have occasion to use QuickTime?
2: I have. Yes. So uh, in in the examples of having, for example, a quick uh, tip and trick for a friend, sometimes if I'm, I just want to do it very quickly, I'll open QuickTime and perhaps pick just a section of the screen. And, uh, if I don't need the voiceover, there's an option in QuickTime to actually disable the microphone, not record the microphone. So you can simply do visual and, uh, and then just send it out. Uh, you can also record your mic if you like to. And it's, again, it's, it's very, very quick and just so easily, uh, easily done in quick time. So for something um, a bit more basic or something just to, that you want to share with someone,
1: it's a great tool. It still is. We used to have a sponsor in a show and they, they had an app called Tapes, T-A-P-E-S. And I just looked the, the last time it was updated was October of 2014. So I'm not sure if we can recommend it anymore. And, um, but it was a good idea. It was a it was an app where you could just click a bar in the menu, and it would um, click a button in your menu bar, and it would record the screen, then would upload it to their web service and send a link to somebody, which took all of the work out of making those quick and dirty screencasts. I don't know if there's anything competitive to that now, but but QuickTime is is a way to go, and, and it doesn't cost you anything to get in there. Just go, you know, it's it's built into your Mac. Open QuickTime and and get to work.
2: Exactly. You can even put a, a little circle around the cursor as you click. There's an option to do that. So
1: very easy. The uh, But the one you know, the one we've been circling around this whole kind of entry section is ScreenFlow. Um, so it's made by a company called Telestream. They showed up on the scene, I guess it was around 2008-ish.
2: That's right. Back in February of 2008.
1: They're up to version six now. Um, and um, we'll put a link in the show notes for it. If you want to buy it, it's $100. Um, i buy it i bought it in the mac app store i I have not gone to the developer for that one for the last several versions i've done it that way
0: now let me ask you david why have you done that because the developer does give you upgrade pricing right does can you get that through the mac app store
1: no i you know the things because i'm bouncing around between different macs i have um one of the things i do is quite often like somebody will ask me to do a screencast on a product that they're making. And they want it for the next version of Mac OS. So I'll have one Mac in the house running whatever the beta of the next thing is. But then I've got another Mac that I used to make uh, podcasts on that my podcast partner will go nuts if I do that. You know. Um, so I've got different devices. And, and then sometimes I even like, yeah, you know, I'll use my daughter's computer sometimes because it's a different screen resolution. I guess it's something else we can talk about in a minute, but I've got, I've got a need to screencast on multiple devices. And the nice thing about having it in the Mac App Store is I can go into any device and just install it with a click. Um, so that's why I always buy it from the Mac App Store. But but I, I know that's not really the, the the less. I know I'm spending more money doing it that way and probably not getting as many features, but it works. How about you, Jeff? Do you buy it from uh, the Telestream or do you uh, do you buy it from Mac App Store?
2: I, I usually, you know, because of the work I do with a couple of companies I work with, I usually get a an upgrade code that i use so my my situation is a little bit different but i have purchased it before from the app store and and i agree with you when you have multiple devices it's it's definitely the way to go um it it limits the friction uh, you don't have you can just click a button like you said so but in my case it's a tiny bit different because i use it professionally so much that uh, my path is a tiny bit different here
1: so uh that being said assuming you want to screencast in earnest um and you're not going to do just the basic QuickTime thing, which is, you know, the no-cost option right now. Uh, ScreenFlow is the way to go. Spend your 100 bucks, And it's a complete video platform. From within ScreenFlow, you can record the screen, you can record your audio, you can do uh, voiceovers, you can make edits and clips, and then you can actually export the video out into a variety of formats. Um, so we thought today what we would do is just kind of talk about those various steps um, what your options are. You know, this isn't going to be a complete thorough job. You're going to have to get in and kind of dig in with it a little bit. But we're going to give you some some tips and pointers along the way and some explanation about what you would do at each one of these steps. St- starting with recording. And I think the first point I would make, if you want to try and make a, a, a screencast, is the importance of your audio.
2: As they say, video is two-thirds audio. So it's very, very important. People are far less forgiving of bad audio. That's for sure.
1: And, and if you're going to, if you're just making the basic one, like when I made the one for my assistant on the billing, I didn't do anything for audio. I just used the internal microphone. This is a screencast that one person in the world, or maybe whoever succeeds her will watch it too. But it's a video for a very few people. I don't care. But if you're going to do anything that you're going to share with more than a couple people, um, figure out a way to do something more than the internal microphone, because even though the internal microphones are great on these Macs these days, You can do so much better for very little money. Um, There's a couple options. Um, One is just getting a USB mic, like one of those headset mics that you plug in. They sell them everywhere. It's a USB cord and it has a little earpiece and a microphone on a boom that goes over your mouth. Those do really good. I mean, we've had guests on the show. We're going to tell you who they are because I don't want you to go back and listen. But we've had guests on the show who didn't have a good microphone set up. And I told them, go buy a $15 headset microphone. And they sounded good enough for the show. As I say that, our editor, Mark, is probably just cringing as he's listening to this. <laughs> he's
0: saying they sounded good because I spent hours fixing <laughs> <I> spent, it.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's probably true. But the, uh, but if you're making these things, you can get in for a very small investment and significantly improve, exponentially improve your audio over the built-in microphones.
2: Absolutely. Uh, one m- minor exception, perhaps, to this would be if you're using uh, quick tips and tricks in QuickTime if you do have access to, let's say, ear pods, maybe that you have with, with your iPhone, connecting those and using the built-in microphone there, that would be perhaps a step a little bit above the, uh, the internal microphone. But other than that, yeah, you go with a good USB mic. There are so many amazing choices now from so many great companies. You know, Blue, Apogee, Shure makes a really awesome one. So uh, lot, lots of great choices out there.
1: Yeah, if you want to get more serious about it, if maybe you're setting up like um, screencasting in your company where you want to regularly do them, um, you may want to look at getting like an entry-level podcaster microphone. For years, I did it with a Rode podcaster. It's a USB microphone with a boom. I think it cost me two or $300. In fact, we talked about that microphone when we did the show on how to podcast years ago. Uh, I think it's still a good option. Would you agree, Katie?
0: I'm speaking to you on a road podcaster. So yes, I do. I think it's a great option.
1: Um, The, there's some others out there. um, uh, Some of the blue micro, there's the blue Yeti that I know is very popular. I, I tried one for a while and I thought it was very sensitive. It was almost too hot for me where it was picking up things across the room and it wasn't isolating enough, but you know, Choose your poison. There, there's a lot of good articles on there about a microphone. What, what do you think, JF?
2: Well, for me, uh, for example, today I do have a couple of setups, but today I'm speaking to you guys through a blue snowball of all things, which I've had for my goodness, almost 10 years. And it still sounds very decent to me. Of course, there's a little bit of a um, couple of tools you can use. For example, I have a pop filter in, in front of it, which is uh, very helpful. And, uh, but it sounds good. And for the purpose of today, I, I thought it would be a, an, an adequate tool, but uh, I also have an audio interface and I use a high LPR 40 when I want to get slightly more serious with the, uh, the voiceover sound, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, lots of wonderful choices out there for sure. W- what do you use well, today? You, s- you
0: sound great right now. What are you coming to us on?
2: Oh, uh, this is a, the snowball.
0: Ah, okay. Snowball sounds great today.
2: um, With a pop filter and fairly close to the microphone today. And that's uh, the proximity effect is important. If you get closer, you get a bit more low end. I I don't have a very, I don't have as wonderful a voice as both of you do, but I try to uh, get closer and that helps a little bit.
1: Yeah. And so that's the second tier. I mean, so if you get in for the USB mic, you're $50 or less. If you want to get in something a little better, a Budget podcaster mic, like a Blue Snowball Yeti, um, road podcaster, you're in for a couple hundred dollars. Uh, and you can look on Amazon, maybe we'll put some links in the show notes to some various ones. Um, and then if you want to go crazy, uh, like a couple of years ago, I upgraded, I got a Yamaha board and a and a um, sure uh, beta microphone, and it's good. I really like it. Uh, I think. I think this rig cost me about, I think it was about four or $500 by the time I was done buying the cords and the boom mic and everything. So it was a little bit more money, but I think it sounds a little better for me. And, um, uh, and that, I think you don't necessarily need to start there, right? In fact, like everything, don't go spend a bunch of money on this stuff. Just start with the basics. Start with a USB and see how you like it.
2: Exactly. And, and when the need arises, you can always revisit and, and talk to friends that you know use good equipment. Like I know, David, I've talked to you about this stuff too. And for example, I'm looking at my stand and I know that it would be nice to have one of those wonderful spring loaded stands that you clip to your desk. Those are great um, to have. You can just pull it away, bring it in when you're ready. Uh, I have a tabletop stand right now, which is quite heavy, so there there shouldn't be any uh, any sound transferring to it. But um, yeah, lots of tools, and and the more serious you get about it, I think it's uh, audio is really really important to get right. And we'll talk a bit about it a bit more when we talk about editing. There's a couple of tips I want to share about that, but yeah, audio is is very very important.
1: Yeah, and on the the point of of editing, I have a nice pair of speakers on my desk. Uh, there are some focal speakers. I I reviewed them like in 2006 or seven. I may mean, have had them forever. And when the review was done, I call. I wrote them and said, okay, um, how much can I pay you to not send them back to you? <laughs> and I've had them ever since then. I think it's nice when you're working on um, screencasts as opposed to a podcast where you always are wearing headphones. I don't like to wear headphones all the time. Uh, I like having a nice set of speakers where I can almost boom my voice back so I can hear if there's breath noises or if there's problems with the audio, I can play it nice and loud and hear it and um, fill up the room. But you could also do that with a good pair of cans.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. uh, That's what I do when I edit. Usually I I try to turn up the volume, not too hot, but fairly high so I can hear some of the breathing if it's not natural. And uh, that's part of editing, of course. But uh, I have my trusty Apogee Ensemble and like you, I have monitor speakers as well. I have some uh, BX 5 as Those are also fairly old, but still very good-sounding speakers from M-Audio, and they're really nice to play stuff through. And, uh, you know, it's I think it's important to listen back to your audio, not only when you record, but when you're editing. Try to make sure you listen back to a variety of devices, including maybe earpods or in-ear, in-ear headphones or smaller speakers, or maybe go in your car, get a... Uh, get a mix of your of your podcast or screencast and listen to the audio because the reality is out there in the world, a lot of times you'll have people walking around or maybe on the bus or on the subway listening to your podcast and you want to make sure that the sound is, uh, is as good as it can be so they don't miss a word.
1: All right, so you got the audio figured out. Now let's talk about capturing the video. And um, there's a couple steps you want to do when you get started. Uh, one of the, the first things you want to do is get a bunch of stuff out of your menu bar. You know, you want to, you, you don't want to distract whoever's watching the video. And once again, this is kind of more kind of upper end screencasting work. Like I said, if I was doing a simple video for an employee, I wouldn't care. But if I was doing something that I was going to distribute on the internet, um, I would take a bunch of stuff out. I use, there's an app called Bartender. that's very popular. Um, It's an app, a menu bar app that allows you to put like a second tier to your menu bar. And we've talked about this in the past on the podcast. I think everybody's a big fan. You still use it, right, Katie? All the time. Well, menu bar is a great fan, uh, a help when you're making a screencast because then you just go in the menu bar settings and you drop all of your stuff out of your menu bar into the bartender bar. So if I'm doing a screencast on Fantastic I've got one I just finished for them that's going to go up soon. Um, everything is out of my menu bar. The clock isn't there because you don't want people to look at the clock while the screencast, they can say, he just did one minute, but the clock shows it's, it's been two hours. <laughs> you know, what's going on with this guy? You know, uh, you don't really want to see how long I spent making that sausage. So I, uh, I put it down in bartender and the same thing like other apps. And you just want to show the one app that you're focused on. Um, and bartender is an easy way to do that. Be, be, in the old days, you had to quit all those apps to make sure they'd stop showing up. And it was just a big pain in the neck. Now, you just, you just drop them into bartender. And it's always nice for me when I finish a production that I can put my menu bar back together.
0: And the beauty about using something like bartender is it makes it very easy because you just go into the bartender preferences and unhide those items and they pop right back to where they're supposed to be. You don't have to rejigger everything.
2: That's awesome. I, I think I'll go ahead and, and, uh, and look for that one. I hadn't used it so far. I was just hiding, manually hiding the date and time, which I agree with you guys is best to, to not show it. But it sounds like bartender
1: is a great idea as well. Well, also, while you're working, sometimes you want to see exactly how long you just spent showing one feature and trying to get the video right. So, you know, if you hide it, it's just not there. Whereas if you just tap the little bartender menu item, it shows up.
2: It's awesome. So you can pick and choose which ones show up. Is that right on the menu bar?
1: Yeah, exactly. You can, in essence, hide them underneath. Um, and it's great. And it keeps everything simple. Um I also think like... The,
0: the other thing that you need to do is you also need to pick a pleasing background pattern. Um, my background right now, I've got set to be rotating photos where every time I restart my computer, the photo rotates. And not only is a personal photo distracting, um, but it you know it's probably your personal photo. Maybe you don't want to share that. And maybe you have clutter. I try to keep a pretty, pretty clean desktop, but maybe not everybody does. So that's another thing I try to do is whenever I start screencasting... I try to clear off my all the clutter off my screen, and then pick a very neutral background.
2: I I remember years ago there was an app called Curtain. Do you guys remember that? It, was, it used to put a uh, black or a colored solid color.
0: So is is there still an app like that that you would recommend, or um, is is the best thing now just to manually clean all that up?
2: I think there are two approaches. I, I think manually cleaning it up. Uh, I I think that bartender is a great idea. If, you go, if you're going to do a lot of screencasting, uh, another option that I've seen frequently and I think is a good idea as well is to create a dedicated user account for screencasting where you can have some demo content. It takes a little bit more work, obviously, but um, that's a, another option. If you if you want to build some demo content that you can use during screencasting, uh, having a separate user account keeps your, your personal stuff out of the way and possibly the friction is a little bit less. But at the same time it takes a little bit more work to manage it and you have to think about all the uh, all the pieces, make sure you have everything lined up. But I've seen that uh um, several trainers for whom I edit uh screencasts uh do do uh, use that trick of having a separate user account. How about you guys? Do you do that? I don't, but
0: it makes a lot of sense. David, maybe you should consider that as often as you're doing it now.
1: I, I've done it for some and I've not done it for others, and it just depends. Um on what kind of data I'm gonna be using. I mean, wh- whatever you're showing, it depends. Um, because a lot of times the stuff I do involves m- multiple applications and it's, it's, it, it is easier sometimes to use it on the single, the account I'm used to using. Um, but it, 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 it just depends, I guess what would be my answer on that. Um, going back to the what you put on the screen though, I would add An additional point is it's very tempting to use whatever is the latest picture in macOS. So the high Sierra is a pretty picture of the mountains and you say, well, that's high Sierra. I'll just put the pretty picture of the mountains in the background. And I see a lot of people who screencast with the current operating system, standard wallpaper. And the problem with that is it's great if the screencast only has a short shelf life, but if it's a screencast that may be looked at for maybe a year or two in the future, It's going to look old, uh, you know, whatever, because next year it won't be High Sierra anymore. It'll be Fresno or whatever. And the picture will change and people will look at it and say, oh, that's out of date because it's a, it's an older version of Mac OS and that's not necessarily true. So I think it's even better to choose just something completely neutral. Quite often I'll do a screencast with just a, like a gray background and just let the app be, you know, tell the story.
0: I want to take a moment and thank our longtime sponsor, Smile, for their support of the show and talk a little bit about the brand new PDF Pen 9. PDF Pen is the ultimate tool for editing PDFs and going paperless. And with the brand new version nine, there have been over a hundred updates to PDF Pen, but of course we don't have time to talk about all of them. So here's just a few of the things that are brand new in version nine. First, there's enhanced annotation. You can switch to annotation view in the sidebar to see a list of all the annotations in the documents, including highlights, text boxes, comments, and more. There are more export options than ever in the new version nine. You can export your PDF a TIFF, a JPEG, a PNG in color or grayscale. And my personal favorite you can now export is a flattened PDF, preventing any editing of annotations such as your signature. Also includes the ability to use a link tool to link URLs or to other PDFs directly to a page in PDF Pen, a new line numbering tool so that you can add line numbers to your page and document really easily. Also, the ability to search and highlight so you can now find and highlight all the instances of a specific word or phrase in your PDF document. Now, these are just a few of the enhancements in PDF Pen version 9, but there's a slew more. They also include more support for forms with calculations, um, additional OCR support for languages such as Chinese, Japanese, and Korean and the list goes on and on. You can upgrade to the new version of PDF Pen 9 for as little as $30 or upgrade to the Pro version for as little as $50. And as with all the Smile products, you can try before you buy by heading over to smilesoftware.com MPU and download a trial copy of the software. I am sure that you will love it and find it just as indispensable a tool as I have been. So to learn more about PDF Pen 9 and the entire PDF Pen family of applications, head over to smilesoftware.com slash mpu and thanks to smile for your continued support of the show so if you're you're screencasting also one of the things sometimes is how how do you adjust because computer screens aren't necessarily the same as tv screens and david i know i watch a lot of your screencasts on the apple tv but you never know is someone going to be watching this on a computer is someone going to be watching this on youtube is someone going to be watching this on a tv Uh, how, how do you normalize for that
1: yeah, I made so many mistakes with this when I was getting started. And it's very tempting to use the highest possible resolution or the native resolution on your Mac, but just what Katie described is what happens. You people end up watching it on an Apple TV or something without as good of resolution. And so two one of two things happens. Either you you render a separate version for that, but it ends up coming out blurry because the um because when you render it, you're taking a bunch of pixels and scrunching them into a fewer number of pixels. So they, there's no way to make it sharp. Uh, and the, or the other option is you don't render a special version out. And then they just try and put a, a too big version on a too small screen. And you never know what the results are going to be. And I want to hear what JF's thoughts are on this. but But I came to the conclusion several years ago that... My screencasts that I make, almost all of them that are Mac-based, are 1280 by 720. That's my magic resolution. And I use that for every screencast. I just recently was making a set of screencasts for um, for a software company, and they asked me to consider making it bigger, and I said, that's fine, but the video sizes are going to be bigger, so the, the, the streaming is going to be slower over the internet and i actually pulled out to all my podcasting and screencasting friends and, and just everybody's still at 1280 by 720 nobody's doing it higher and with this um this customer or client ultimately we decided to also keep it at 1280 by 720 because they didn't want to have people have a experience where it took a long time to download the screencast over the net but what is your position on that Jeff? are you going higher
2: oh you know i tell ya Canvas size and screen resolutions are hot topics. They really are. Um, different people understand it differently. I mean, truly, I find that I like to go the uh, in the other direction. What I mean by that is I what I like to do is start with a slightly lower resolution and then scale up inside a larger canvas. Uh, so, for example, if you were to do... Um, a 1600 by 900 capture for example that's that's also 16 by 9 not as common as 720p or 1080p and from there you can scale up and there is a an a, an exact percentage in screenfold that you can figure out easily you can even drag with the shift key um, held down and that's going to snap to it and you can make your canvas 1080p and it's still going to look sharp but the uh, the font and the menus and so on will be large enough that people can see it even on iOS, even on a smaller device like a, like an iPhone SE, for example, which has a smaller screen, but a lot of times I get I get a screen full of files that were shot in a 2K resolution, and um, that stuff is small, man. And I, I have to um, to use video actions, or as I like to call them, camera moves, to compensate. And once you use too many camera moves, it can become distracting. So uh, my advice usually to to trainers is to try and find a happy medium where the app still looks good, especially if you want to see the whole desktop, because you can get away. For example, if you do a Logic course, for example, Logic Pro, and all you need is is the window, you don't go to menus very often, you may not need to see the menu bar extras in the upper right and the spotlight and notification. So you could uh, theoretically just design an area of your screen and make the, make the, um, the UI of the app you're doing fixed and, and make it that way. That's cool too. But if you want to see the whole screen, uh, my recommendation would be to stay away from those amazing retina resolution as much as you can, because they, they are very difficult to see when you, when you zoom out full screen, so to speak, when you do the establishing shot, I'll call it that in ScreenFlow, then it, it becomes very difficult to see anything on the screen.
1: Yeah. And that's a point I didn't make is when you use the higher resolutions, the text is really small and then you go and put that on a television set and it's really hard to read what the user's doing. Now, I would add, though, that I do occasionally shoot higher resolution on a shot where, and we're going to talk about this later, in ScreenFlow, you have the ability to zoom the screen where you can say, okay, I want you to zoom in on this part. Like, I'm going to zoom in on this dialog box or this section of this application. And when I know I'm going to be doing a bunch of that, I will shoot a higher resolution in those cases, because then when I zoom in, it's got more pixels to work with.
2: That's a great idea. And parallel to that if you're using graphics in your presentation in your screencast having the best possible graphic you can go crazy on resolution because let's say to take the example earlier with google earth if you have a wonderful graphic of a map and it's really really high resolution you can zoom in using those video actions in screen flow and you can still have a very sharp image so not only does it apply to what we call the screen recording but it can also apply to any any graphical elements that you bring in your presentation, you can make sure that those are really, really high quality and, uh, you know, high pixel density so you can actually zoom in and retain retain sharpness. And in this day and age, we're, we're really lucky. Computers are fast enough and we have the luxury of being able to do that um, without any, uh, mostly without any negative impact. So that's pretty cool
1: as I'm listening to his talk, I realize we are not giving really good advice to anybody. There's no one answer to screen resolution. And that's, that's one of the problems with this, why it's hard. Um, what there is one answer in terms of the best app for managing it. And it's an app that's not available in the app store. It's called switch Res X, all one word. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, I, when I bought this app, I loved it. Uh, like for instance, sometimes you'll see somebody makes a screencast that goes on to televisions and it's got black bars on the top or on the sides because they shot it in the wrong aspects, aspect ratio. And when you put it on television, it just, it just doesn't fit. Um, and that's often because as an insider trick here, you know, they shot it on a laptop because often the laptops are not 16 by nine, which is what you need for a television, and um and if you use all of the native resolutions, even the apps you can buy in the App Store that change the resolution on your Mac, uh, you're not going to find a 16 by 9. But this with a Switch Res X, I don't know what kind of magic voodoo they do, but you can put any resolution on any Mac with Switch Res X. Like you want 1280 on 720 on a MacBook Air, it'll do it for you.
2: It is a fantastic app. It's so deep. Uh, you can go, <laughs> as Katie likes to say, you can go in a rabbit hole with that app for sure. Lots of amazing features, but at the very basic level, you can nail that resolution and get it right every time. Even if you have multiple displays, it will support that too. So great app.
0: So while we're talking a little bit about setup, one other question I wanted to ask you is kind of about the data that you're showing on screen. Now, again, depending on the audience, this may or may not be a big deal, but you may not necessarily want to show a screencast of your personal data on your screen. How much thought goes into and how much prep goes into coming up with dummy data that you can use for a demo so that you're not sharing your information with the world?
2: Well, I I think it it starts with with very good planning, depending on the screencast you're going to do. Uh, If you're not going to use, for example, a user account and build some dummy data that you'll reuse over and over, no matter the situation, then you'll just have to ask yourself, am I going to be showing Finder windows? What do I have in my sidebar? Do I have lots of custom folders that may confuse or distract uh, my my audience, my learners? So you have to think about this if you're going to keep your user account. Fortunately, ScreenFlow can help you a little bit. There are annotations, there are ways to, to blur sensitive information during your screencast. So you can you can also do a little bit of that. But in my case, I just try to really plan. And, and it takes a little bit of time, but it's time well spent, I feel like. You, you, you just want to put yourself in front of the learner, look at your screen, and ask yourself, while I'm discussing this concept, is my learner going to look at my menu bar extras and figure out what each icon is? I know I've done this before. I look in the upper right, I'm like, oh, what's that one? I don't know what that one is. So you have to plan in that way. Um, David, any any ideas for on your end?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's very good wisdom that you plan a lot because it is so much easier to figure that out ahead of time than to fix it later. Uh, you know, going back and blurring and doing things like that takes a lot of work, and sometimes it requires a complete reshoot, which means you're essentially back to the drawing board. I did a screencast that just got published last month for the guys at Fantastic Out when Apple announced that uh, all Mac apps that use um iCloud data are going to have to have a separate authentication code. You know, I don't know. It's kind of a news item here in the Mac Power users, but the um, they made a change. And so if you're using fantastic how to access iCloud calendar data, you've got to go get a one-time password for that application. And they say, we're, we're afraid our users aren't going to know how to do that. So I said, okay, I'll make you a quick screencast showing it how. And as I did the test shots and kind of set it up, I realized going through to set it up it's going to display my phone number because I went on Apple's website and showed you how to make one. And um, I didn't want to do that obviously. So I did some post-production that wrote in a phone number afterwards and I was very careful about matching the font and everything. And the phone number was one, two, three, hyphen, four, five, six, seven. You know, I figured, every, or, you know, people will understand that's not my phone number, right? The internet blew up. When I, I got so many emails and tweets from people saying, Dave, you just gave your email onto the whole internet. You know? and I'm like, go back and look at the phone number and you'll know that it's okay. I, what I, what I, I left my area code in because I just thought, you know, I didn't want it to be so obvious. But the, um, I think that's what threw people. But, <laughs> you know, but but you're right. You have to look at it. And and when you finish, if you're going to put something on the internet, you need to stop and look at every frame of it before you press that publish button. Because especially if you're not using a separate user account, it's very easy to to give up something you didn't mean to.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you know, you could you could also perhaps for that purpose create a demo account or two for email for example. Uh that could be uh that could be useful to in order to conceal that that information. It's worth spending the time.
0: Yeah, you guys have now led me to a follow-up question which you don't have in your outline here, but I'll I'll ask it anyway, which is to what extent and how do you plan out your screencast? Do you Do you outline them? Do you script them? And how detailed do you get?
1: I guess the answer is yes. (laughs) It depends. It depends. I mean, like when I do something that somebody's paying me to do, it's very detailed. And there's other people that review the outline and they even review the user data. Like I, I like to make them kind of funny, you know, because I feel like when people are watching these, um, you put user data, you put data in there. Like when I did the Omni focus one, the whole thing is about a guy who runs like an evil empire and he has minion problems and getting insurance for them. I I tried to take common world things and put it in the world of managing minions. And I never mention it. You know, the whole, the, the whole point of the joke is to never acknowledge it. But if you watch the videos and you're sitting there doing something boring, learning about an application, but if you actually watch the goofy stuff, the guy's typing, it makes it, somewhat humorous and kind of keeps you engaged a bit but when i do it for another company they may not want me to be you know snarky sparky you know i just they just want simple data so i always prepare all that in advance and send it to them and and the people that are paying me to make it get to take a look at it and say no we don't want you to do that we want something else um sometimes they get involved when i did the screencast for my node last year they wanted me to do it on the uh, a, a, a mind map on the differences between star Trek and star Wars. Cause they listened to Mac power users and they thought it would be funny if I did that. Mm-hmm. So it just depends, but
0: I, I don't remember getting editorial approval over that mind map.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I left you out of that contract, Katie. Huh.
2: <laughs> no, I, I like everything you say about the, the, the planning, uh, David, my experience has been, I'm not one to, I'm not too crazy about the script reading type of screencast. Uh, I can only think of one facilitator whom I respect a ton. He's a composer that does tutorials for Mac Pro Video. His name is Thomas Goss. And he has this incredible radio voice. And his scripts are so well written that he could read them all day. It would still be amazing. My approach, however, is to have, uh, Katie, you mentioned it, to have an, an outline. Make sure that I go through the app and I comb through the features and I decide what I want to present and just put some bullet points of things I want to hit. And not try to pigeonhole myself into something that is too scripted because what ends up happening, I think is that uh you sound um a little too robotic and you may you may come across as not having a good time doing it. I think it's very important to to pretend your learners are right next to you and do your best to to convey some information uh some accurate information, but also have a little fun with it and I think that um that is something that I've seen. Through the comments that I've gotten over the years, uh, something that comes back often in the comments is, is the uh, the relaxed, laid back nature of of what I do, and I think that's very important. At least for me, I feel that like that's really a uh, really good good way to go when it comes to screencasts. It makes them more fun to listen to, and um, you just you just have uh, have to have a little bit of fun with those while maintaining accuracy, of course, in terminology and so on. I, I
1: think, think having fun while you're recording is great, and it 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 really helps. It comes through. And it, it, like just the other day, I was recording one uh, for a project I'm working on for one of my books and something I wanted to happen just wasn't working. Every time I did it, it got worse and worse. And then I went back and listened to it. And one of the tips we're going to tell you in a minute is just let the tape roll. There's nothing wrong with stopping and let it go over. I went back and listened to it. I could hear myself laughing, you know, because you know how sometimes things get frustrating for you and then you you catch yourself getting hooked into it and you start laughing at yourself like oh my goodness I can't believe I just let myself get this upset over something so stupid and um and you hear it back and then you hear the take I did after I was laughing at myself and it's the best take and it's the one I kept. So um I think you just have to kind of roll with it a little bit. I and like JF I don't script out. I I definitely speak I know what I want to say I'm in the ballpark. And uh, as a result of the way I don't script, I do often go back and do voiceovers later to fix things.
2: And that's absolutely fine to do. Uh, And we'll maybe talk about this a bit more, but you want to make sure that you listen back to your work. And maybe you'll dive a bit deeper later on during our tip section, but uh, it's important to listen back to your work immediately so you know you can identify something that may have gone awry. Maybe you said control instead of command, and it's very important to catch it early. Uh, It's a lot more difficult to recreate the energy and the sound uh, a couple days later when you realize, oh, I made a mistake in my modifier key. So that's another tip. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and and your voice changes from from day to day, from morning to afternoon. uh, You know, just depending on the circumstance. David and I, we now record the ads either before or after we record the podcast. But I know I always try to do them same day, either before we record or after we record. Because when I do them on a different day or a different time, you know, things change and you sound differently.
2: Very true. As a matter of fact, my voice is going to, yeah, there it is. At this time of day, it goes higher. Just (laughs) happened.
1: (laughs) I didn't know you were soprano. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk a little bit about capture on iOS. Um, uh, A couple ways to do that. ScreenFlow has a capture method on iOS um, where you attach a lightning cable. Let's back up. Uh, QuickTime capture with uh, iOS is really great. So QuickTime's already on your Mac. You plug in a copper cable, plug in the lightning cable, plug it into your iOS device, go into QuickTime and you press capture and you, it'll capture video right in QuickTime.
0: It's also a, um, an easy way if you want to, dis- it was kind of the only way that if you wanted to display your iOS device on a, on a screen, like in a projector, it was an easy way to do that. We used to do use that all the time at my, my Mac user groups before there were these reflector apps and, and those types of things.
1: So, And I really believe a copper wire connection when you're doing screencasting is important with an iOS device. I never do it with um, wireless. I've done a couple experiments over the years. Katie just mentioned an app called Reflector. And the problem is for one reason or another, sometimes the wireless connection slows down the frame rate drops, or you know something else happens. And what's happening when you're doing that is you're screencasting. So you're looking at your iPhone screen and you're demonstrating a feature and you are not looking at the screen of your Mac at all. So you have no idea that the whole capture you're doing just became pointless because it slowed down. And then when you go to edit it, you see that, oh, you know something went wrong with the connection. And for that reason, I switched over to copper wire connections uh, several years ago and I've never even tried wireless since then. What, what are you doing for that, JF?
2: Oh, absolutely! Uh, cable all the way. Uh, it's just not stable or reliable enough
1: uh, to to capture
2: over Wi-Fi. So, yeah, I'm with you on that one for sure.
1: And and QuickTime does a good job. I would argue that QuickTime does a better job of this than ScreenFlow does. I have had I don't know if you've had this experience, but with ScreenFlow, I frequently have drops, even with a lightning connection to an iOS device, where I press record. And then I spend the time necessary to get the right takes and I go and I, I press, you know, done on my Mac and then ScreenFlow picks up an audio track and not a video track. You know, it just didn't pick it up and that that's not, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it's, it's, it happens enough that it's frustrating, you know, nothing worse than spending 20 minutes trying to get the recording just right to find out that it just never recorded it. And that happens to me. Uh, This is version six. I mean, it still happens to me in ScreenFlow.
2: Yeah, they'll have to uh, to, to dig deeper and, and find out perhaps what's going on there and maybe try to improve it because we uh, mobile devices are not going anywhere. So we'll be capturing them for a long time to come. Uh, of course, QuickTime allows you to capture, like you said, in a pretty reliable way. You can export a movie from there. Uh, however, the downside is if you import a movie from QuickTime into ScreenFlow, then you're losing some of the features that ScreenFlow offers when it comes to uh, dealing with a screen, a true screen recording clip. But I, I will take reliability any day on iOS for sure.
1: So what, what I've done now is when I, when I record iOS devices in, in ScreenFlow, I disconnect and then reconnect and just kind of go through the whole process before every take. Remember when I said it gets to an hour per minute? <laughs> this is the kind of stuff uh, that makes that happen. But that works pretty reliable for me. But if I just leave it connected and make multiple takes at some point, I'm going to get burned. Um, and I'm, I'm quite excited about this feature in iOS 11 and I haven't done enough testing on it to report back. And, you know, iOS 11 hasn't shipped yet, so we don't even know, but iOS 11 has added a record button that appears to do a native recording of the, um, of the screen, uh, on the device itself. So there's no connection. There's no copper wire because it's making a recording right there and it saves it to your photos library which I think is going to be awesome for like showing so Like if I want to just show my sister how to delete a photo in Apple photos, I can just make a recording right on the phone and then email it to her. It's going to be great.
2: Absolutely. That's going to be awesome. Have you seen whether taps get recorded with some kind of uh overlay
1: of any kind? Have you been able to see that? I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. I haven't gone deep enough yet. And like, I know that if you long press the record button, it gives you some audio options, but I don't think the audio is going to be great. Like if I d- use this stuff in production, what I'll probably end up doing is recording audio separately, but, but just do the raw recordings on the iOS devices. But, but so iOS captures getting easier all the time. This episode is sponsored by FreshBooks. Go to freshbooks.com MPU and enter Mac power users in the, how did you hear about us?" section to get a 30 day free trial. To all the freelancers and free agents listening right now, if you could reclaim up to 192 hours of your precious time this year, would you? Our friends at FreshBooks make cloud accounting software for freelancers that's ridiculously easy to use, and they are the architects behind that question. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. These guys aren't just resting on their laurels, though. They've been hard at work with this. Uh, The new notification center is like your personal assistant. You always know what's changed in your business since you last logged in and what needs to be dealt with pronto. Also, FreshBooks automates late payment email reminders so you can spend less time chasing payments and more time working your magic. Getting invoices out and billing your clients is important, but it shouldn't take over your life. And that's what FreshBooks does for you. It allows you to manage this stuff while at the same time giving you more time to actually run the business and do the work that you want to do. Now, FreshBooks may have 10 million users, but they've managed to stay a pretty small company, landing them the title of small giant on Forbes list of best small companies this year. These guys are putting a ton of effort into making it the best online billing program out there, and if you haven't checked them out, you should. FreshBooks loves Mac Power Users. They're offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for listeners of this show. There's no credit card required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash MPU and enter Mac Power Users, and those are individual words in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So save time and make more money today at freshbooks.com slash MPU. All right. So let's just talk a little bit about capture tips and trenches. I think capture is, is we've spent a lot of time getting this part in, but it, I think it's the most important for screencasting. Um, what are some tips you'd share, JF?
2: Mm, absolutely. For me, the first one is the idea that you have to record the whole thing in one take, sit down and as if you were performing a musical instrument live in front of an audience. You don't have to do that in ScreenFlow because you can actually uh, work in segments. And so my first tip would be try to work in shorter segments. And uh, you can blend them in later on. You can combine them. That's, a, that's something that I, I do often, for sure. You mentioned something also, uh, you know, pausing, letting the tape roll, as, as we say. That's also a great idea. There is a pause recording feature in ScreenFlow, but I find that if you have to hit the screen, you know the uh, keyboard shortcut to do it, you might as well just let the tape roll. You can even give yourself an audible notification. You can just say cut or something like that or redo. And later on in the editing room, you can do uh, ripple deletes.
1: I talked about this on one episode of Mac Power Users with Eddie Smith year, a year or two ago. I have these audio clicks. I just click my tongue in my mouth like this. I go, you know that sound. Okay, so... I have like one click means certain things, two clicks mean certain things, three clicks. So I have a whole system in my head. You don't need to hear the whole breakdown of it because it's kind of insane, but uh, I can look at a timeline and I can just, those clicks show up right in the timeline very easily. So when I'm doing the edits, I can see exactly where there's a replacement track, where there's a start over track, you know, all these things, uh, just by the number of clicks I make with my tongue before I start recording. And for me, that's why I let the tape roll. It allows me to just do that. And then, Uh, going back to do edits later is very, very fast.
2: That's pretty clever. That's cool. I'll look into that. That sounds
1: like a great idea. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you the whole story (laughs) off why nobody wants to hear this. But uh, the the other thing I do that's very important, and this is something I learned over the years, is um, it's easy to be fidgety when you're screencasting. Like you stop, you finish a section, you want to go to the next section, you want to think a minute about what exactly you want to say, and your hand moves on the mouse or on the trackpad and you're, you're adding all this extra noise to the screen that doesn't need to be there. Uh, when you finish a take and you've got the tape rolling, or even just when you stop rolling and you know you're gonna start again, one of the best things you can do is take your hands off the keyboard and everything and just just not move anything. Keep the screen exactly how it is. And then when you start up again, use this the keyboard shortcut to restart the recording. And as a result, when the the video goes into edit, the mouse isn't jumping around the screen.
2: Absolutely. Your editor will thank you, whether it's you or someone else, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Sort of along those lines, speaking of cursor movement, I I encourage people when I give them feedback or I try to do this myself, striving for smooth and, um, you know, even navigation through the menus. When you go to a menu, it's very easy to overshoot. And miss the menu, miss the sub-menu, then go across and, and then miss it. And it closes, it opens again. Slowing down is, I think, a, a really good idea. The reason behind that, of course, uh, you may feel like, oh my God, it's going to be so slow. People are not going to want to watch. But ScreenFlow has a fantastic speed adjustment feature. You can very quickly speed up the clip. So if you do slower but very smooth and even navigation through your menus, knowing exactly where you're going, you may, that's part of preparation, by the way. You want to check to make sure you know... If the undo menu is under edit or under window, you want to make sure you know where that is. And once you're done doing it very slowly, very evenly, then you can speed that puppy up and uh, it's going to look very smooth. Well, and the
0: same with typing, because the last thing you want, everybody makes occasional typos, but you don't want a whole section full of typos that you're backspacing, backspacing, correcting, correcting. Um, Type slower and methodically, get it correct and then you can always speed up the typing section. That's one that I always speed up is whenever I'm typing something.
2: That's awesome, Katie. I can give you an editor's tip for those people out there that uh, do editing for themselves or other people. This is something that I do painstakingly, but I do it every time. If someone happens to deliver something that has typing that is not accurate, maybe there's a typo, they come back, as you were mentioning, Katie. What I do is I do an insane amount of ripple deletes. So I use the left and right arrow keys to move frame by frame And I try to put a couple, maybe two or three frames between each letter, and I ripple delete everything else. And when I'm done, of course, I'd rather have the trainer do it the first time. But if they don't, that's okay. Uh, I do it that way. I do a bunch of ripple deletes. And at the end, I end up with a very smooth transition through the typing. Um, And the
1: number of edit points doesn't matter, of course. I'm sure there's some folks listening there saying, what's a ripple delete?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, my apologies, everyone. <laughs> ripple delete is probably the technique that you'll use the most during uh, the editing part of your work. Again, whether you're doing it yourself or maybe doing a rough cut yourself and passing it on to an editor like David David or myself, ripple delete essentially means that you can select a range on the screen flow timeline. And just like so many other non-linear video editors, you can use the I And O keys, as it stands for in and out. You can use those single letters without any modifier keys to establish a range. And once you have that range down, you simply do Command Delete. There are menus, I have no idea where they are because I use the keyboard shortcut all the time. And that will simply remove the section that you've delineated with those in and out points. It could be a few frames long, it could be a few seconds long. If you want to shorten down the pauses, for example, I try to speed up the pace a tiny bit. Ripple delete is probably the editing technique that you'll use the most uh, while screencasting. So I use it a lot. And this is what I do uh, with, uh, with uneven typing. Uh, so that's a good one to know for sure.
1: What I've come to do with typing over the years is I type very deliberately. If I make a mistake, I will backspace and then do one of my, my famous clicks You know, on the audio track and then so I basically I'll cut out the 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 mistaken attempt and then I'll just type very deliberately. I don't do JF's thing where I I set a set number of frames per letter, but I actually drastically accelerate the video because I feel like people watching don't want to sit there and watch me type. They're not that's not why they're there. They can figure that part out. So I will accelerate it like 800%, you know, where a 15 second typing thing just turns into, you know, one second. And if you watch it just very quickly, it's like, wow, that guy typed really fast or you no, know, it's obvious that he just accelerated that part. But I, fe- I feel like the audience is with you there. They don't care. They just want you to get to the next part.
2: Absolutely. Unless you're doing something text based. Maybe you're talking about a command on the, something on the command line that you want to explain, pause and explain. But otherwise, most of the time you want to you want to get it in there and get done. For sure.
1: But another, pro, another pro tip on that is you don't start the um, video acceleration until after the screen animation ends. So like you let the screen animate onto the screen at normal speed and then you accelerate in between and, and you end it right before the screen animates off. The, you know, because the screen slides up and off the screen like an iOS. That's where this most often happens. So you want you want everything to look normal. You don't want the screen to like zip up onto the screen like it's, you know, you know, just, you know, taking, you know, like it's been drinking Pepsi Cola all day. You know, you just want to look normal. But once you start typing, they make it go fast.
2: Yeah, that's an awesome tip. Goes a long way for sure. Uh, We mentioned it. Yeah, we mentioned it a little bit. But of course, um, you know, playing back your work during the same session, I think we mentioned that. So that's, uh, again, so important.
1: You want to catch that stuff. Uh, You'll hear yourself make little verbal, you know, mistakes. And when you do it right after you record it, it's actually easier to catch that stuff. You also want to watch watch it a day later because you'll catch things you wouldn't see right afterwards. And we've kind of drifted into editing as we talk about this. So um, there's so many tools in ScreenFlow. I just want to kind of go over some of them to give you an idea of what's available to you. You're going to have to go spend some time with the tools. We can't teach you on an audio podcast how how to use them all. The first one are the video sizing and effects tools. And we talked earlier about how you want to zoom in the screen. It's really easy. Like if you are doing something, you want to suddenly blow up the screen to just one section, Uh, you can proportionally zoom the screen so it doesn't get all goofy proportions. And then you set a point and they have these actions in ScreenFlow where you say, okay, at this point, I want to go from 100% video to 200%. And you just physically set the screen how you want in the application and the animation takes place. It's, It's something that used to take a long, long time in Final Cut Motion. And now you just click a button and it's done.
2: It is. It, it, those video effects uh, are really, really good. Video actions is the uh, the term they use. There are several types of transitions. I, I favor myself for video actions, uh, what I call ease in and out. It's the name of the feature where it sort of has a little bit of uh, movement and then slows down a bit and slows down at the end. I am a big fan of those. I make my transitions, my video actions a bit longer, but I like the idea of the ease in and out. If you uh, if you guys have never tried that, it's it's worth a shot make it a few tenths of a second longer, and it's just very smooth.
1: Uh, You can template those, which is kind of cool. You want to talk about that?
2: Oh, yeah. Template actions is something that a lot of people are not aware you can do. And again, because I do so much work in ScreenFlow, both as a screencaster and as an editor, I need to find any time-saver tips I can find. And template actions go a long way. They are very useful, and essentially, you can create one by simply, uh, you know, right-clicking. And again, you'll, you'll do this in the app itself, but you can actually designate a template action and save it, in, and you can actually reuse them. You can even update them if you modify the one that you've already saved. And you can do this for a variety of different actions, including video actions, but also audio actions. And it saves an immense amount of time when you're able to just nail that one camera move that you think is so cool, and you want to use it again, whether it's going... In the upper left corner to uh, to zoom in on that Apple menu, or maybe in the center, any any kind of video action that you can think of, you can you can actually save in uh, in the template actions. And those, by the way, can be shared. So you know the ScreenFlow community, us as editors and screencasters, we can actually share those template actions with each other. Uh, and it's really well explained in the documentation. You can actually do that, and it, it just goes a long way. And I highly recommend that uh, that everyone using ScreenFlow takes a look at uh, a template actions.
1: Yeah. We could almost call this the screen flow show because they've just pulled so far ahead of everybody with the tools, like things like this, you just never would have imagined it years ago when we were doing done with the very basic rudimentary screencasting tools. Um, just like you can adjust the, um, the video size, you can also adjust the audio, which is nice. And and you can also add template actions to that as well like Jeff was just talking about but the audio tools are are quite powerful like if you want to have a fade in with music to your voice you can do that if you want to have ducking where the music gets softer underneath you and by the way don't ever make a screencast where you have music playing behind you the whole time that's like that's a that's a no no but the um but it gives you a lot of power over you know the audio settings Sometimes my mic, you know, you want to have a mic technique when you do this stuff. You want to keep your mouth about the same distance from the mic. Occasionally when I do iOS stuff, I I will record audio while uh, running, driving the iOS device. And then my mouth will look, I'll look down and my mouth won't be directed into the mic as well. And I'll catch sections where the audio backs down a little bit and I need to make specific adjustments ScreenFlow can do that. You can take a segment of it and just say, "Okay, uh, turn up the audio," and just this little segment right here, and it allows you to balance things out nicely. So, along those lines,
2: I I mentioned template actions, of course, which are huge. But I've, uh, with the years, I've learned to use a couple of external apps to ScreenFlow that are saving me a ton of time. Whether it's something as simple as PathFinder, which I'm a big fan of, and the reason why I'm a big fan is because you can use regular expressions to rename files. And sometimes I work on really big projects with lots of ScreenFlow files. And the fact that I can use regular expressions and put in a prefix is really cool. Um, Another one, more recently, Keyboard Maestro. You can program some fantastic macros that can do some of the tasks, uh, the common tasks in ScreenFlow.
1: Yeah, tell me about that, because I've never tried that before. Oh, yeah. So uh, this is something that Don
2: McAllister, he's, you know, I, you guys might agree he's kind of like the godfather of screencasting
1: sure in my is. mind he's yeah. been
2: at it for so long he's so amazing at it and so uh, very recently he he shared with me uh, some tips on how to use keyboard maestro to uh, to make things happen in ScreenFlow. Uh, and it's a series of commands essentially uh, this is during editing uh, rather you know common things such as ripple deleting for example but the thing that he does it's a little bit different it doesn't stop with ripple deleting. What he does afterwards, he puts in extra actions that rewind the playhead a few seconds and then starts playback right away. So not only can you ripple delete, but he can also rewind and listen to what you just did just to confirm that the edit is right. And it's, it's really, really useful. Yeah, so he has a couple of those and I, I've made a couple myself too. And Keyboard, Keyboard master
1: is really excellent at this. Because when you told me that, I was thinking, what would you use it for? Because it, it's already so fast. If you use the keyboard shortcuts, I don't know what you would do, but but rewind is a good idea. So because that's what you want to do. You want to hear what you just changed. Yeah, exactly.
2: And and of course you could do it manually. So if you did the ripple delete, as I explained earlier, then you would you would shift left arrow a couple times. That's twenty frames for for those of you keeping count out there. And then you would hit the space bar. Well, well, Don decided. Well, why should I do it if I can just add a couple actions? Uh, shift left arrow a couple times and then the space bar, and then it's going to play back. And there are a couple other ones that are useful, uh, getting rid of gaps and a few others like that. So pretty good. And uh, very recently, no, probably a week ago or so, I uh, started using Alfred again, Alfred Three, and the workflows and so on. And I uh, started getting uh, warmed up to its clipboard history and snippets. And this is so I can put in markers a, a lot quicker. And again, as an editor, I sometimes need to give feedback to my my trainers, my facilitators. And what better way than to put a marker on the timeline for them to see and perhaps, uh, you know, talk about a little later on or maybe for for the person that follows me in the editing room. So having Alfred clipboard history and snippets is really great. Of course, you can do it with text expander or launch bar, but I've been uh, falling back in love with Alfred recently and it's
1: pretty cool. So what kind of what kind of clipboard snippets do you put in like? Is it just like editing editorial stuff, or
2: yeah, exactly? So, uh, let's say I do a, I speed up a clip, and I want my uh, the next editor to to know I'll, I'll put in a marker that says sped up clip, or I'll put uh, maybe there's a typo somewhere that I fix. I'll mention that maybe I cleaned up an audio edit. So, just a few things I don't want to have to type um, several times in a row. So I have those, and it's very quick uh, with Alfred and keyboard shortcuts. You can do that very quickly.
0: This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create a website. Maybe you want to create a portfolio. Maybe you want to create a blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed, You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Squarespace has just got you covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and you have access to all of those award-winning templates that are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I've been using Squarespace to host my own website for years, and when I needed a website for my business, I chose Squarespace. I know several people in my industry who are spending hundreds of dollars a month on websites that can't even hold a candle to my Squarespace website, and it's just ridiculous. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, use offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for Mac Power users. Thanks, Squarespace, for your support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website.
1: All right, JF. So in addition to making changes to the video and and audio, one of the nice features in ScreenFlow is you can also add graphics. And I use this stuff all the time. If I want to highlight a section on the screen, you can draw a little circle or a box or whatever, and they're very easy to do, and um, and they're very easy to set, because it's an editable event at that point. It is, yeah.
2: They, they have so many great tools, annotations and call-outs, and many, many uh, great graphic tools that you can use to just spice up your presentation. I, I have to mention this one ScreenFlow rock star that I know. He uh, His name is Peter Schwartz. He's a fantastic musician, orchestrator, arranger, so on, and he did several tutorials on Mac Pro Video, you guys have to go watch at least one preview. This man is a ScreenFlow genius. He does so many incredible things all within ScreenFlow. And when I see his stuff, I'm like, my God, this app is so incredible. So there are so many things you can do. And when you see how far someone can take it, it just tells you that you can do many, many awesome things within ScreenFlow just to sort of, uh, you know, highlight the content or make it a bit more interesting, uh, perhaps put a circle around a specific area of the screen, not only camera moves, but also uh, with, with graphical elements on, on the screen. So very, very cool. Uh, they've come a long way w- with all these tools over the years.
1: And related tools allow you to highlight the mouse cursor, uh, to zoom in on where the mouse is, or display uh, uh, typing on the screen. And And that's something where you can say, okay, I want to show if I'm hitting command keys or keyboard shortcuts, you want to show that, you can show it. Uh, and the trick there is to cut that video segment so you just show the sections where you're typing the keyboard shortcuts you want to show. If later you're typing in a text field or something, you don't want all those letters to show up. You can make those types of edits. It used to be all or nothing, and now they've they've made it in a way that you can be very granular in the way that works. And you'll
2: be happy to know that template actions also incorporate uh, keystrokes. So what I do often is I create a custom keystroke display. So I don't like to have the whole banner on the bottom of the screen. I resize it to be very small and then I can move it around the screen.
1: So much you can do with this app. Uh, so we've been we've been straying into editing as well. Uh, you know, talking about when you get it, you start start uh, going through using these tools to pull it together. Um, what are some of the, um, the editing tricks that you find, you know, as you're getting deeper in this? Stuff? Like, oh, here's one. How do you add touches to a screencast showing like on iOS, like someone's touching the screen.
2: Oh yeah, so there are the built-in gestures in in ScreenFlow that you can use, uh, built-in gestures, but you can also create your own. And as a matter of fact, the, the two companies I work for as an editor have created their own custom uh, gestures. And those are sim- simple animations that you can drop in and put over the, uh, the UI on the iOS device. And just simulate several types of gestures. So I think if you look, you look on the internet, you can probably find a few custom ones. But ScreenFlow set is is actually pretty good, and that's important. I, I I think you don't want to overdo it, but you want to make sure that the uh, the learner or the viewer is is very, it's very clear for that person what you're doing at what time, and you want to also be clear with your voiceover too.
1: Yeah, and, and a little user tip there is the way ScreenFlow puts those those touches in is it sets them at the cursor point and quite often that's not where you want them you know you i i back it up like i i try to put the touch in a second or so before it actually triggers the event on the iOS device and then being very careful with your ripple deletes you can set it to end just as the button press is recognized by iOS and it looks very natural but that's another thing that takes time you have to kind of go through and set that manually yeah it's it's detailed
2: work at this point right you want to be able to zoom in on your canvas sometimes
1: and all this stuff we're talking about, the graphics and the touches and that stuff, um, that stuff I usually do towards the end of an edit. You know, the first while I'm going through, if I'm working with people, you don't spend time doing that stuff until you've got the the video in pretty good shape.
2: I fully agree with that, especially voiceover. Once again, getting back to audio, you want to have the final cut of your voiceover before you start digging in and making camera moves only to find out later on that you uh, you forgot to mention a shortcut or you... You mis uh, mispronounce or or uh, use the wrong terminology. So absolutely, waiting till the end goes a long way. And also stepping away for a little bit, stepping away from the recording, and uh, just take a break and come back with fresh eyes and ears and start looking at it as if you were learning yourself and find out where are the areas where um, where an animation or a call out would be uh, beneficial to the uh, to the learner.
1: And so voiceover is when you get towards the end, you listen to it and you say, I don't like that sentence or I want to change one word in that sentence. And as you record this stuff, you get good at pausing between sentences, even briefly to give you kind of an edit point. And using ScreenFlow, you can have it actually just record the microphone so it doesn't even record the screen. And you can just go through and make a list of all those things you want to replace. And I always go through and I make several takes and I rate them with clicks. You know and then when I, I go back later, I can look at the audio file the waveform and and pick the best replacement and go through and, and substitute the, the audio and if you do it right, the person watching will never know that that came out of con- that was recorded separately. That's a
2: great way to do it alternatively, you can also use as you were mentioning recording only the audio, but you can also switch over to screenflow perhaps put a marker or two to delineate the area you want to re-record. And actually play back to the uh, screen recording as you're speaking. And you can just uh, grab that audio clip and then pop it in at the marker point and you're good to go.
1: While I'm not recording the screen quite often, I will play the video. So I have an idea of what, what's going on. And and another real power trick that I use in every screencast I ever make is the freeze frame thing. Where you can you can split any video at any point. And hit a keyboard shortcut or a menu item, and it inserts a freeze frame, and that gives you space. so if you go back and add two or three words and you just need the video to be a little bit longer, it's very easy to do that.:
2: Freeze frames are so useful. Shift command F for all, all of you <laughs> that want to know, but yeah it's 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 a really really useful uh u- useful shortcut and useful technique as well for sure. I like to zoom in on my canvas also to uh like I was mentioning earlier, to do some some um, really, really precision work on my annotations or, or the placement of my objects, So zooming in on the canvas is also something you can do easily in screen very important too.
1: Was that command control zero, I think, or command zero. You know, I do it and I don't. Yeah. Well, the,
2: the command control zero is the one that uh, basically zooms the canvas to fit. But if you command plus and minus, you can zoom in really, really tight. So it's pretty useful.
1: Um, all right. So let's say you've got the whole video done. You're really happy with it. Now what are you going to do with it? You want to put it in the world. You need to export it. You can do that in ScreenFlow too.
2: Yes, ScreenFlow has become so much more useful and so much more. The performance has increased uh, quite a bit over the years. Uh, The one addition that I really loved when it came out, and I have a feeling most ScreenFlow users really cheered when that came out, was the idea of the batch export window where you're able to drag several ScreenFlow documents, set your export settings, and basically just get a preset for everything Pick a folder where everything will be saved. A few other options, and then just just go and hit export. And just go uh, go for a walk with your dog and let that
1: let that roll. And depend what you're doing. Once again, like if you're making the video for in the company, you say I wanted an iPad format or I wanted in you know 1080i format. You can pick. They have some pre built ones in there where you can get it out very easily. Uh, but they also, if you want to go high end with it, you can do a lossless export, which is a massively huge file that from there you can take it into different places.
2: Absolutely. Massively high quality. I'm glad you mentioned the lossless uh, preset because that is what I use uh, all the time. When I'm responsible for everything from the editing of the uh, document all the way to the uploading to a server or somewhere else, I do lossless export every single time. And then I use Apple's compressor app to batch compress or batch transcode, I should say. And so that's proven to be very reliable for me. And uh, I don't care if the files are big in this day and age. Storage is so inexpensive. So having all those lossless exports, first of all, take a lot less time than transcoding uh, in ScreenFlow. The quality is really outstanding. And you can really dial in that preset in compressor, even have some actions that happen after the transcoding is done. And that's worked really, really well for me. So I keep doing that for sure.
1: Yeah, if you do any type of video work, I think Compressor is a, a massively underrated application and now it's sold separately. You used to have to buy um, a Final Cut to get it. Now you can get it as a separate app in the App Store. Uh, what are some of the other apps you use after you're out of screen flow with a, with a video product?
2: Well, uh, certainly Compressor to Transcode, I in in some cases if I have to do a little bit more involved post on the audio I may throw the finished movie the lossless movie into Logic Pro for example to do some uh, some more detailed work on the audio uh, I've done that several times and from there you can of course save the uh, the remixed audio or the uh, the altered audio back to the movie so I've done that quite a bit and I think as far as I'm concerned that's about the uh where I as far as I go for the for the output I use those apps and um, I'm able from Compressor, of course, to upload to different services. Or if I need to upload to a server, I uh, my go-to app for this is Transmit. So I, I mount, uh, you know, I mount a favorite on my desktop and I just uh, can do it that way. Sometimes from the command line, sometimes just through the UI. So that works really well, too.
1: Okay, you get that, everybody? <laughs> so I have a couple of
0: final closing questions here for for you guys because you've dug really deep in in the trenches here on on screenflow, and I think I, I screencasting in general, but you've talked a lot about screen throw and I, I think you've got everybody on board that, that this is the app to use and that screencasting is a is a good thing to look into. But it's really hard to get across on an audio podcast how this works, and how do you actually use this application. So one of the things that I want to make sure that we touch on before we close out this show is where can people go to learn to how to use this app? Because you you talk about ripple deletes and cutting in and out and, and doing all of these wonderful tips and tricks that we can do. But I had to tell you, honestly, a lot of that was way over my head. And I, I do use ScreenFlow for for a lot of things. And I was like, oh, I've got to figure out how to check that out. Um, so where can people go to learn to actually how to use the application and then maybe re-listen to the show and, and dig in a little deeper?
2: Do you have any great resources? I definitely uh, can can relate to you when you say that it's very difficult to convey all this. And for me, Obviously, it's a topic I'm familiar with, so it's easy for me to rattle off all these things uh, very quickly. But there are, fortunately, there are some some great resources out there. You know, I, I'm still a fan of the um, the app's help menu and also the user guide, which has some good information. But if you want to learn using a video and a tutorial, of course, <laughs> interestingly, uh, for example, uh, Don McAllister over at Screencast Online. We mentioned Don a few times today. He has done uh, fairly recently, and this is back in 2016, uh, a five-part course on ScreenFlow version 5, which is almost uh, very close to version 6, and then he did an update a little later on. So that's definitely one place where you can go. Uh, I haven't looked on lynda.com. Maybe, David, do you know if there is something there? Uh, But that might be another resource, Um, and of course, so many of us rely on YouTube for these things. I know I've made a couple of YouTube videos. I'm not even sure if they're still around, but explaining a couple of features in ScreenFlow. So those would be my go-to to to learn the app. Finally, Telestream.net, the website and the company that makes ScreenFlow, they host on a fairly regular basis some, uh, some webinars where they talk about the process and they explain some of the basics of podcasting and give you examples, practical examples on how to use screen flow and for what purpose. So those are also really, really useful. And I know a couple of the guys over at Telestream and they're very good at what they do. And I've watched a couple of webinars just to see what they're about. And that's another thing I would recommend also. And, and finally, just use the app. Just go ahead and kick the tires and use the app and tr- start with something small, something short and uh, go from there.
1: I think, um, and what I would say to this, if you really want to get good at this stuff. I would sign up for screencast online. Even I think if you just do it for a couple of months, I think Don has a plan where you can do it for a couple of months. I don't think he'd hold it against you. If you just, you know, subscribe long enough to learn screen flow. Um, I, Don McAllister is the godfather of this stuff and his explanation of, it, I think would be the place I would start. So if you want to get video tutorial of it, go sign up. I was just looking. Yeah, it's a five part series. so. Uh, and if you'd listen to the show after that, maybe you'll get some more tips out of it. I'd like to think that we gave you something today you could use too.
0: No, I think you have, I think, you have.
1: but the, uh, but it, it, it is a, uh, it's, it's a complicated application, but it's not inaccessible. And I just, I've said it already, but it's just so much easier than it used to be.
0: Well, JF, where can people find you
2: on the internet these days? Oh, yeah. So the internet for me, a place I don't go to that often anymore. I'm so busy with everything else. However, I, I still have a Twitter handle and I tweet periodically, not too often, uh, J.F. Brissette without the vowels. So that's J.F. B.R. S.S. and T.T. So J.F. Brissette uh, on Twitter. And that's really where I where I post most of the time. Great.
0: Well, it's so great to talk to you again. I I know it's been a while since we've seen each other in person, but I I hope to rectify that soon. And we're thrilled to have you on the show talking about screencasting. And um, we look forward to to speaking again soon.
2: Thanks so much. I've been looking forward to this since uh, the day you asked me to to do a show (laughs) with you guys.
1: So thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, we had so many people asking. I, I know it's not everybody in our audience, but there's a significant number of folks listening that want to understand this stuff. And I realized that, you know, the perfect guy to talk about it is Jeff. I mean, that's, you, you do so much of it and you're so good at it. So thank you so much for sharing your, your wisdom with us.
0: Well, and thanks to our sponsors this episode, Smile, Fracture, Squarespace, and Fresh Books. And we will see you all next time.